Well, we continue through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians 4. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just a quick recap of the letter of 2 Corinthians up to this point. Uh, Paul is burdened in his soul. Uh, The church is opposing him for many reasons. All of it, he believes, unfounded. They wondered why he changed his travel plans and they accused him of being not a faithful person, not someone reliable or trustworthy. Um, They accuse him of not being uh, an eloquent speaker, um, not having good recommendation. So Paul thanks God for comforting him in his sorrow, um, a sorrow that he feels was so destructive in his life that it almost brought him to the point of despair. And now in uh, chapters, basically chapters 2 through 7, he takes a delightful excursion um, just describing gospel ministry and the wonders of gospel ministry uh, from chapters, the mid of chapter 2 kind of to the first part of chapter 7. He describes the work of ministry as a triumphal procession, uh, bringing an aroma of life to those who are being saved. Uh, He reminds them that he doesn't need a letter of recommendation because the people in the church are his letter of recommendation. That he's been called by God as a new covenant minister. Uh, And because of this, the success of the work is assured because it's actually God's work. He reminds them that the Holy Spirit brings light into darkness through the ministry of the word. And now he continues by describing the kind of people that God uses to do this ministry. So we'll begin reading in verse 7. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word, preserved throughout the ages by the Holy Spirit for you today. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the unsurpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Amen. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come to you as people who need our ears unstopped and our eyes opened We pray that you would help us to clearly understand the truths of your word, that your Holy Spirit would not only help us to see them, but apply them, and that it would be put deep into our souls, and we would be encouraged and you glorified. Bless the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Heavenly treasure in jars of clay. There's three things that I think we'll see from this. Of course, there's only three, but kidding. There's three points, though, to the sermon. We'll see the glorious and powerful treasure for what it is. And we'll see, the secondly, the fragile jars of clay. 
And then thirdly, we'll see it through the lens of the suffering of Christ. All this is God's to God's glory, because in brokenness we see light. I read uh, recently about a couple from Scotland, Angus and Angela Brown. Um, they purchased an old, dusty chair at an auction. They paid five bob, which I think Patty explained to me is somewhere around $6.50. Um, they began to clean that chair and reupholster it, and it was old. And as they began to reupholster it, they found within this upholstery of this old chair that looked filthy, looked like it couldn't even bear the weight of a person, an invaluable stash of jewelry and diamonds uh, that was just kind of hiding there. This chair was contained, contained this beautiful treasure. And no one knew about it, but once they found out, the chair became very sweet to them and more valuable. It was surprising, though, that such a despicable and weak piece of furniture would hold such an amazing and glorious treasure. This seems to be something of the point that Paul is making. This is our first point, that there is a glorious and powerful treasure to be seen. He says in verse 7, we have this treasure... In jars of clay, and this is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Well, what is the treasure? The treasure is gospel, the gospel ministry. The jar of clay specifically refers to Paul and subsequently to all gospel ministers and in some ways to all Christians. What is exactly the treasure? Well, he tells us in the previous verses um, it's summarized probably best in verses 5 and 6 where he says, We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate goal of all gospel ministry. This is the treasure to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And all of this, all of this all-surpassing, conquering ministry is from, from God, Paul says. It's all from God. In the previous two chapters, Paul has been exalting the ministry, the new covenant ministry that God had given him as a ministry of grace, a ministry that frees people from bondage, a ministry of sight for the spiritually blind, a ministry that brings life from death. And it was all by Christ and for Christ and in Christ and unto Christ. It was a glorious ministry of salvation, showing the light of the glory of Jesus Christ to a dark and dying world, filled with dark souls and dark and dying people. And yet here Paul pivots and he says, this glorious ministry is given by very weak vessels, people who are dedicated to the ministry of the gospel, men who are weak and frail and despised and suffering and broken. And the whole point, of course, is to show the contrast between the glory of the wonder of the ministry and the weakness and the frailty of the vessels that bring this glorious truth. 
the, the glory of the diamonds that are found in the old and dis, despised and rickety chairs that sell for five bob at an auction. The vessels are men used to dispense gospel truth by preaching. And the success is all from God. It's entirely due to God's power. That is the point of the contrast. It's all because of God that His gospel goes forward. Why is that? It's because the victory over sin and death and Satan was accomplished by Jesus Christ, all by God's power. The victory over the gospel similarly is completed by God's power and is all due to the Lord. The reality is, if you think about it, it must be this way. It must be. It's not that it's just, it happens to be. It must be like this. And this should not surprise us. If you know anything about the depravity of man, how far we fell at the fall, how wicked is the heart of man, and how holy and righteous and just and pure is our God. It should not surprise us at all that God uses and must use very weak men to pour out heavenly treasures on God's people. This shows God's power. And he says that in the, in the end of the verse. This is to show God's surpassing power. The gospel's surpassing power actually belongs to God and not to any man. And why is it so powerful? It's because the gospel is powerful and the gospel is about Jesus who contains all power and glory and honor. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, He created the universe. He holds all things together by the word of His power. No wonder it's powerful. He came to earth incarnate. We're going to celebrate in December Christmas about the incarnation of Jesus who came to earth in the flesh to save guilty sinners like you and like me. He lived a perfectly holy life. He experienced the wrath of God. He took our place on the cross and suffered and died and was buried. And on the third day rose again from the dead. And He ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God. And He will come again to judge the earth in glory. And God found His work perfectly sufficient. Perfectly sufficient to pay for our sins and His righteousness to clothe us with righteousness that we need to approach His throne. And the power is so great that someday when He returns, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is power. And it's a powerful message made powerful by the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ who has all power in Himself. So this is a wonderful and glorious gospel that is actually dispensed by weak and frail and broken ministers of the gospel. They're jars of clay. Paul says he is a jar of clay. This is the second point. It's the second thing we have to notice. And not just Paul and not just me and other ministers, but all of us need to see ourselves clearly. We're all, in a sense, jars of clay. All of us carry a treasure of 
inestimable value in our souls, the Holy Spirit. And Christ is in us because of the Holy Spirit. We have a great hope. And in our frail and broken human natures, the Holy Spirit lives today. And it's for this reason, of course, that all forms of human pride and vanity and all the, all the sins that flow from it are directly opposed to Christian ministry and inhibit our prayers. Rather, the true Christian is increasingly transformed. In chapter 3, Paul said, from glory to glory as we behold the face of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We become more like Christ who, Paul says in Philippians 2, considered the glories of heaven something not to be grasped, but became a man, taking the form of a slave, and humbled himself. This is how God transformed each one of us as we focus on the glory of Christ. We're all jars of clay. But especially this is true for the under-shepherds of his church, the ministers of the gospel, All, like Paul, will be humbled. They will be made godly. They will be sanctified. And really, if you think about it, even the most sincere and gifted and godly and holy Christian person that you know, at their root is really another jar of clay. Another cracking and fragile jar of clay. A broken vessel. And by this, God ensures the glory of any spiritual ministry or any spiritual aspect of your life goes all to Him. All to Him. When you're praying, if you pray the Lord's Prayer regularly or contemplate the Lord's Prayer during your prayer time, you get to the point where you say something about the evil one and God keeping you from evil and the evil one. And this should be a time when you reflect on all that God's done to sanctify your soul. But then also you know that it's not from you. You know that it's from the Holy Spirit and you give Him glory. You know that you're dust. You know that you're a jar of clay. So how does He transform these jars of clay into something that can be used, that shine light? Well, He does this through trials and hardship and discipline. Do you know that those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines? If you're feeling a hardship or a trial in your life, and we all do at times, in in the sense of God loving His children, you can embrace that trial in a way because you know that God is loving you enough to discipline you, to break out of that clay vessel some, some glorious gospel light. So Paul embraces the suffering that he's experiencing because of the glory of God and the great benefit to the church. Ministers are often beset in so many ways. Charles Spurgeon, the so-called prince of preachers, I love the man, I cannot wait to meet him in heaven. He served as the pastor of a Baptist church in England for 38 years and his ministry was extremely fruitful. I think I'm busy at times. I'm nowhere near as busy as Charles Spurgeon. He did the work of three lifetimes in his short lifetime. Every week he would preach four to eight times. Every week. Every week he would read four or five books. Four or five books. 
He lectured. He edited a monthly magazine. He wrote during the course of his ministry over 150 books himself. He directed a college. He directed an orphanage. He was on the board of directors for over 66 other charities. Besides the fact that he was a loving father and a husband. Oh, and by the way, he's a pastor of a church, a large church. Very fruitful ministry. But if you know anything about his life, you know that he was also very much afflicted in body and in soul. His whole ministry. He had a burning inflammation of the kidneys. I don't know what that is, but it sounds terrible. He had gout, rheumatism, neuritis, all very painful maladies that made the physical pain in his body unbearable. Later in his ministry, he was out of the pulpit in his later years, about one-third of the time, because of the intense pain. And not just the pain, the church politics and his opposition and the criticism he faced and his overwork and his personal loss and his family, family members who have passed away or suffered their own sickness. And all of this left him often to bouts of depression. He was often in his soul just burdened to the point of depression. He would leave England each winter for a few months just to recuperate so that he could continue in ministry. But he patiently endured all of the suffering that God brought to him because he knew that the result was the shining of the glory of Jesus Christ. And you can't read any of his sermons without sensing that this man knew suffering and he knew Christ. It's much the same feeling when you get you get when you read Paul's letter to the Second Corinthians, or really any of his letters, when he discusses his own weakness and his own suffering. Spurgeon, like Paul, talks freely of his suffering. Often in this letter in Second Corinthians, we see that the suffering came from his opponents. It was so relentless. In chapter one, he despaired of life. He said, "Not only that, we see physically he suffered." Later in this letter, we'll see all of the various ways that he was actually persecuted. But the principle is this, that when God crushes us, his light shines forth. When we die ourselves, Christ lives brightly. And suffering and the hardship and hardship are the means by which Paul says in chapter 3 that we are being transformed increasingly into the same image from one degree of glory to another of Jesus. And this comes from the Lord. Well, he tells us in verses 8 and 9 how this happens. Because it happened to him. He uses the language of combat, the language of a soldier to describe his afflictions. In verse 8 he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And the prepositional phrase in the Greek, in every way, doesn't just apply to him being crushed or afflicted, but to all of the identifiers, to all of the descriptors. So he's in every way afflicted, but he's also in every way perplexed, in every way persecuted, in every way struck down. 
How was he afflicted? Well, the word afflicted has, has a sense of being hard-pressed. It's a soldier when the battle is pressing against him and he doesn't really feel like he can move. It's the battle is pressing against him so tightly. And yet he says he's not so closely pressed that he's still not able to turn. He's not crushed. He also says he's perplexed. And this is more than just confusion. It's the idea of being at a complete loss as, as to what must be done. Have you ever been in a situation where you reach the end of yourself and you just don't know what to do? And that's usually one of the most refreshing things you can say to anyone or to the Lord is, I don't know what to do. Let us pray. Paul felt like this. He felt so perplexed with regard to the Corinthian church. He did not know what to do. And yet he did not despair. God in some way always seemed to be moving the ball forward, even though he felt like he was being defeated. He said he's persecuted, but not forsaken. God never left him. He always sustained him. He's struck down. Again, this is a reference to combat. His enemy has not just overtaken him, not just pursuing him, but overtaken him and struck him down. He's on the ground. And yet he said he was not destroyed. You can get a sense of how Paul is feeling about the church and the ministry he has in, in Corinth. He's, he's feeling surrounded. He's perplexed. He doesn't know what to do. Persecuted. Struck down. But in all of this, he says, God has sustained me and God will sustain this ministry. And it will all be to God's glory. Despite all of my trials, God's glory will shine forth. Charles Hodge writes of this passage, God's deliverance occurred so often and in cases so extreme as to make it manifest that the power of God was exerted in Paul's behalf. No man from his own resources could have endured or escaped so much. He compares himself to a combatant, first hard-pressed, then hemmed in, then pursued, then actually thrown down. And this was not an occasional experience, but his life was like that of Christ, an uninterrupted succession of indignities and suffering. So was God unkind to Paul? No, this was all done for the glory of God and for Paul's good, and really for the good of the church. So the treasure of the gospel is carried about in jars of clay. These jars of clay are men who present the gospel like Paul. Paul says he's a jar of clay who's progressively cracked and broken by suffering so that the light of the glory of gospel of Jesus Christ can increasingly shine forth. And Paul's argument climaxes in the next sentence, it seems. This is verse 10, our third point, the suffering of Christ. He says, I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. These two verses, verses 10 and 11, he basically says the same thing in two different ways. But what does it mean when Paul says that he's always carrying in his body the death of Jesus? I believe that's the question. What is he saying exactly? Paul sees all of his sufferings are part of God's grace in his life. 
It helps him to minister the gospel. He's able to taste a portion of the suffering of Jesus. The suffering that Jesus himself experienced at the hands of the world that he created. It's like he's saying, to paraphrase, in my life, you see suffering, and it's the suffering that Jesus experienced. And Paul saw that his suffering for the gospel, in that he was sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Wherever he goes, whoever he sees, whatever he does, wherever he is, everywhere with everyone, he experiences the same sorts of trials and hardships as Christ did. John Calvin wrote, The death of Jesus includes here everything that made Paul despicable before men. And this theme of experiencing suffering for Christ runs through the whole, the whole New Testament. And really, you'll see it all through the Scriptures. Why is God doing that? Well, we'll talk about that. We will also experience suffering for Christ in as much as we are transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. We will and we expect to feel the same rejection and suffering that Christ did, at least in some degree. Romans 8.16, Paul says as much when he describes that we are children of God. He says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You see, that's almost a mark of a real Christian, is that you face the taunts and the persecution of the world that hates God and that hates His Son. And we will suffer with Christ in that way. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 11, If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. Certainly he's talking about a physical death, but he's also mostly talking about our life, our life of persecution because of Christ. Peter says the same, 1 Peter 4. He says, we rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. If we're insulted for the name of Christ, we're blessed. So we expect to share in Christ's sufferings. We expect to be persecuted. And all this is for God's glory. And it's not because God hates you or He's turned His back on you. It's because He loves His church. He loves His bride. And He loves you. Jesus told us that this would happen as well. That those who would come to Him would be like Him in some way. In Luke 9.22, He explains what will happen to Him on the cross to His disciples. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and be killed and the third day be raised. And then the very next verse, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see what he's doing? He's saying, this is going to happen to me and everyone who follows me, they're also going to take up their cross They're going to experience the same kinds of suffering. Lesser degrees, certainly. But the same kinds of things will happen to them. This is something that happens to every Christian. 
And Paul encourages us to embrace it, it seems, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I urge you, brothers, in, the, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. A sacrifice was put on the altar and killed. Remember, it's not just spiritual language. He's saying, embrace this, this dying to self. Embrace the work of the Holy Spirit as He sanctifies your souls. And the hardships may be difficult. And we don't love hardship. That's not the message. But we love our Savior and we trust Him and His work in our lives. And this process is critical. We need our flesh to be broken. We need in some way to experience the suffering of Christ. This is critical because in that we shine brightly for Jesus. This is what he says in verse 10 and in verse 11. This comes so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And he repeats it in verse 11. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. You want to shine for Christ. Amen. God will use the suffering in your life to bring you to a place where you're bursting forth with gospel light. In your weakness, He is strong. In your inadequacy and suffering, in your affliction and perplexed nature, in your persecution and being struck down like Paul, it all came about so that Christ could be seen. In your life, it's the same. So the heavenly treasure is the gospel. It was the ministry of the gospel. It was carried around in Paul's weak and frail body. He admits that he's been persecuted and afflicted in so many ways. He's a jar of clay, so often broken, so that the success of gospel ministry could only be from God. It happened because of God, before the face of God, he said in chapter 3. And God's constant care of His people and His tender care of His ministers is the only way that the gospel can ever go anywhere. So let's conclude by looking at the great light that comes through this process. When describing this particular passage, Matthew Henry alludes to Judges 7. He, he thinks that Paul is thinking of Judges 7, what we read for the Old Testament reading where God specifically reduced the force under Gideon. Gideon had over 30,000 men. And God said, no, it's too great. We have to reduce that force so that everyone sees that the victory came only from me. So he has the little test at the river and everyone who lapped up the water, like dogs, those 300 were the ones who were kept. Everyone else was sent home. 30,000 men sent home. 300 left. That's all. And they were to face an enemy more numerous than the sand on the seashore, filling the whole valley. So they put torches in clay pots, in jars, and they went up around the valley on every side, three companies of 100 men each. They had a trumpet in one hand and torch in the other. They broke the pots. The light burst forth. They blew their trumpets and shouted for the Lord. Dr. Douglas Kelly says, This is what God is doing in Christian ministry. 
There has to be a brokenness in the Christian's life so that the resurrection light of the Lord Jesus may be able to shine out of us and illumine others and cause them to see through the darkness the bright face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Gideon and the 300 men, Christ's light shines the most when we are the most broken, when our jars are cracked and broken to pieces. That's why he says in verse 11, for we who are always being given over to death for the sake, for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So on the one hand, there's death for those who are Christians, especially the ministers of the gospel. God is going to bring them to a spiritual frailty, or sorry, a, a frailty and a death in their souls as they're constantly given over to all kinds of trial and hardship so that life will be dispensed, the glory of the light of Jesus dispensed to those under their care. But the principle applies to all of you as well. As God breaks you, also you shine forth the light of Christ. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when God bids a man come, he bids him to come and die. This glorious truth is that as God causes you to die to yourself, the whole church benefits. When the church suffers with you, when the church sees God sustain you, we all are blessed. We all are benefiting. Well, how do you see death at work in you through suffering? How does this bring life to the church exactly? We see in you a growing reliance on Jesus Christ alone, a growing love and humility where there was once anger and pride, a patience and a godliness as God works His character in His suffering people. And He sanctifies all of us for service. Like Paul, He makes us holy and effective and shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't despise the hardship and the suffering when it comes. You don't have to hope for it. Certainly, but when God brings it to you, don't despise it. Humbly and patient endure the trial because it's working great good for yourself and for the kingdom of God. I just want to close by reading the passage one more time. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not driven to despair. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it encourages our souls. Lord, we often feel so inadequate, so inadequate to 
live the Christian life or to share the good news that we have with others. To shine for you, we don't know how to do it. And yet we see in this passage that you are faithful and you will accomplish that thing which you have ordained for each one of us. You are faithful and you will break our jars of clay. You will humble our flesh so that the light of the glory of Jesus Christ may be seen in our faces. Lord, that you will be glorified. Lord, help all of those in this room, in our church, who are suffering right now. Lord, we know that many of them are under severe trials. The most grievous and heartbreaking trials and hardships. We pray that you would be glorified, that you would comfort their souls, that your promises would be true, that you would remember that you have adopted them and that they are your children and you would comfort their souls as a father comforts a crying child. Lord, lift us up. Lift us up into your arms. Minister grace into our souls. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Commander, and our King. Amen.